Baseball, a sport where a game can take seven hours and end with a score of one to zero. Ah, yes, baseball. But in 1919, the whole of professional baseball almost struck out when it was discovered that players were betting against their own team. Seems a little odd, right? Well, it happened. Oh boy, did it happen. There's a lot of crazy schemes in this here story, and even crazier names, like our hero, Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis. That was his real name. Find out more crazy names and even crazier bets when we discuss the World Series of 1919 this week on This Was a Thing. Titanic sinks, Scott Joplin's the rage. This was a thing in the ragtime age. A fool there was the vaudeville stage. This was a thing back then, back when the Archduke was shot. Lord, we had a lot of coke fuel nights. The Mona Lisa was thieved, and then Chicago got peeved at dear old shoeless Joe. Say it ain't so. Thou house is formed, remember when? That was a thing, and this was a thing, this was a thing back then. Hi, I'm Rob. And I'm Ray. And you're listening to This Was a Thing, the podcast that dives deep into the cultural happenings of yesteryear. On today's episode, we're looking at the 1919 World Series scandal. This was a thing because 100 years ago, professional baseball players didn't have player rights and didn't make very good money. So what was the next logical thing to do? Go to football. It was 1919, so it wasn't really a popular sport. So the next best thing, fix the World Series. Okay, lead on, my friend. So the curse of the Bambino, the curse of the Billy Goat, heck, even Merkel's Boner are all curses and bad things that have happened to Major League Baseball teams. Every week you come to me. And I think you've made up these things. No. Nope. Is there such a thing as... I have no Curse of the Bambino. Yes. Is there a Curse of the Goat? Curse of the Billy Goat was on the Cubs, and there was a guy who would go to a Cubs game back in the day and would bring in his pet Billy Goat, and they banned him from going into the game with his Where pet Billy Goat. Where was this? It was in Chicago. It was for the Cubs. And so they said, well, he said he put... Well, I'm putting a curse on the Cubs, and they won't ever win a World Series, something. But yeah, it's, be, it, it's based on a guy bringing in his pet goat in to watch a baseball game. Don't forget, everyone, tomorrow is Billy Go Night here at Wrigley Field. Well, they embraced it, and I'm sure, I think there's like merchandise with goats and stuff on it as like a type of thing. Now, and what was the last one? Merkel's Boner? Merkel's Boner. I'd never heard of this one before me doing research, but it's just, it was in 1908, and just uh, Merkel was a, a rookie on, I think it was the uh, New York Giants, and. He had a boner, which is not what you think. A boner back in the day was a mistake. There's actually great old Batmans from back in the day where J- uh, Joker keeps talking about my- that boner. Ha, 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 ha. Is that where we get the term boner from for, for an erection? Uh, that's a hard question. Please move on. <laughs> but here's the thing. I'm pretty sure that like curses can only be put on teams by like powerful witches warlocks or wizards and by marguerite the housekeeper from the one episode of the golden girls that puts a curse on the girls okay and marguerite so this probably was the biggest curse put on a sports team this was the curse of the black Sox. now the result of the 1919 world series scandal was you know the curse of the black Sox. a scandal that probably was brought on by let's be honest saruman himself This scandal not only rocked baseball, but it was one of the biggest stories at the time. And I will say, full disclosure, I'm more of a basketball guy, to be honest. Go Lakers. (laughs) But uh, this scandal has always been something that interested me. And so this 
podcast was the perfect medium for me to, as we say, dive deep into this cultural happening of yesteryear and do the research. The thing is, there's so many differing stories that it's very hard to get all the facts straight. So this is presented with the best of my knowledge, but there was probably about five different timelines that I found and like with all different varying pieces of information. So there's a lot to this story. Great. There's a lot of different colorful characters. So that's fun. But unfortunately, since it's 1919, I couldn't find any clips from back then, not even like really radio clips. So they don't have all audio but get ready for some voices folks Woo! (laughs) so before we get into the 1919 world series or more specifically like i said the black Sox scandal uh, we have to start by talking about charles comiskey uh he or commie is what they call him or the old roman the man's nickname was commie commie yeah i think this was before communism really took over because his like night you know the early 1900s late 1800s but he was a major league player manager and most important to the story he was a team owner he was very important to the founding of the American League and Comiskey Park, which is the uh, stadium that the White Sox played in from 1910 to 1990. So they named the field after him that they played in for 80 years. So he's just, he's a known entity in Chicago, at least. Uh, He was born in Chicago in 1859, and he ended up playing for several uh, professional teams out there. And at the same time, he was a plumber's apprentice and did random construction work, which I think is driving a brick delivery wagon. It's always good to have something to fall back on. Yeah, right? So he started as a pitcher, but he moved to first base because of arm troubles. But he played from 1882 to 1894 for the teams, the St. Louis Brown Stockings, the Chicago Pirates, and the Cincinnati Reds. He became a full-time player manager in 1885, and he led the St. Louis Brown Stockings, or the Browns, to four consecutive American Association championships. And back then, player managers were a big thing where... I mean, you double as a player and then figure out, okay, which is also crazy. Um, I wonder if he did that and then went and go delivered bricks because, I mean, that is a couple paychecks for old Kami. Well, I'm sitting here delivering the bricks. Let's write down some plays for tonight's game. Now, remember, we're the only team in baseball as there are no other teams, so I think it'll be a pretty easy game. <laughs> now, we don't have balls, but I've got it worked out with the Brick Association that they'll sponsor us, so instead of throwing balls tonight, we're going to throw bricks at each other. Oh, there went Curly. <laughs> Hit him right in the head. <laughs> And he's down. Well, well, make sure it's okay. No, not Carly, the brick. He left his playing manager career to purchase the Western League Club in Sioux City, Iowa, and he moved it to St. Paul. But after five seasons, he moved it to Chicago with another National League team who would end up being the Chicago Cubs. So that was, he moved his team. So then there established two teams in Chicago, which is still today White Sox and Cubs. So Comiskey was the owner of the White Sox from 1900 until his death in 1931. Spoiler alert, he dies in 1931. Uh, Comiskey oversaw building Comiskey Park, like I told you, in 1910, and he won five American League pennants and two World Series, one in 1906 and one in 1917. He did lose popularity with his players, though and they started to become extremely hateful towards the man. Comiskey was known to be notoriously stingy. He even forced his players to uh, launder their own uniforms. Tracy Peterson notes uh, that in the era of professional athletes, they, d- they didn't have free agency back then, so the White Sox formidable players had little choice but to accept Comiskey's substandard wages. So they couldn't leave and go to another team back then. They had to be traded or sold to another team. So the players are not happy with him. No, they're not because- happy with him. They're like, we can't leave if we wanted to. Exactly. He treats us poorly, Mm -hmm. and we have to wash our own clothes, and we have to lay down bricks in our off time. Exactly, yeah. 
They said uh, Swede Risberg and Lefty Williams made less than $3,000 a year, which is about $44,000 today. And Shoeless Joe Jackson and Buck Weaver made about 6000 a year, which is 88000 today, which, I mean, if you look at baseball contracts, 88000 is about what a pitcher would probably make in a game nowadays. So wait a minute. Can we go back to these names? Shoeless Joe. The Shoeless Joe Jackson, Swede Risberg, Lefty Williams, Buck Weaver, and let me get to Eddie Seacott. Eddie Seacott had been promised $10,000, which was 147.5 around $1,000, uh, if he could win 30 games in that season. So he was promised $10,000 for winning 30 games. Who promised him money? Comiskey. When Seacott... Closed in on his 30-game goal. He was so close. Comiskey had him benched to keep him from reaching that mark, and also so he wouldn't get the bonus. Comiskey said that the reason for having him benched was so Seacock could be ready for the World Series and to protect the star pitcher's arm, but everyone says that he really got pulled like on game 29. That's really shitty. Yeah, exactly. So another thing about Comiskey, one time he promised his players a bonus for winning the 1919 pennant, which is what you win to get into the World Series. And that bonus was a case of flat champagne. So, yeah, so that's the kind of guy. This guy's a real asshole. The old Roman. Um, So, like I said, in... Who's the old Roman? That's uh, that's one of Comiskey's other nicknames. How many nicknames? Tommy and the old Roman. He had a Roman nose, Roman all over his face. I don't like this man. Um, so the Chicago uh, White so the Chicago White Sox won the World Series in 1917. They beat the New York Giants six games to two, best of seven series, which is normal, best of seven. At the time, the White Sox were led by manager Pants Rowland, real name Clarence Henry Rowland. He got his nickname Pants from base running antics while wearing his father's workday overalls at games in the Dubuque Ninth Street Blues in Iowa. How sad were these people that they thought that was funny? Old Pants was fired after winning the World Series due to a disagreement with Kaminsky, but that actually probably ended up saving Old Pants's pants. Over the next couple of years, and after they won the 1917 World Series, resentment for Comiskey was growing at an all-time high. Players hated him and started calling him miserly. And I mentioned before, he had a reputation for underpaying. So they won the World Series, and then they still didn't feel like they were getting paid up any bonus or anything. In this era of baseball, there wasn't really a players' union that would have the players back. So due to baseball's reserve clause, any player who refused to accept a contract was prohibited from playing baseball in any other professional team under the auspices of organized baseball. So players weren't allowed to change teams without the permission of their current team. So with no unions, players essentially had no rights for bargaining power. So if you didn't if you didn't like your contract you could leave and then you couldn't play anything that was called organized baseball or you would get like fined like a crazy amount in this era all player contracts were only for one year and so there weren't even long-term contracts like there are today you see players in baseball signing 10-year contracts nowadays but let's be honest with life expectancy one year was a 10-year contract that's true. For these people. yeah that's about a tenth of a life that's true so yeah because of the reserve clause it made multi-year deals impossible and it allowed teams to reserve players for each season unless a player opted out of his contract and did not play for in the league for a year. Now, Charles Comiskey, the old Roman, the White Sox owner, was probably no worse than other owners when it came to paying up. So the 1919 White Sox had the highest payroll in baseball at the time, but even still his players still felt like they deserved more money, especially since they'd won the World Series a few years prior. Because the players often felt slighted by the reserve 
reserve clause, it was easy for gamblers to find players on many teams who were looking for a little bit of extra cash. Gamblers found this business very enticing. Like I said, many of the facts surrounding this scandal are in dispute, so the best timeline I could piece together, so let's go. White Sox first baseman Charles Chick Gandal was the ringleader of the whole fix. You're lying with these names. He was described by contemporaries as a professional malcontent. So that seems like a good good guy to go to when you want to fix the World Series. Oh, Chick? Oh, yeah, he's a professional malcontent. Don't use an amateur malcontent. I love the character witness statements that they made back then. He was, always had a mean and callous expression, and he was 6'2 and 195 pounds. So back then, he was like a giant, and he used those to show how tough he was. And uh, he wasn't afraid to use his sheer strength to get his point across. Chick Gandal meets Joseph Sport Sullivan. On September 18th, 1919, Chick tells Sport that the World Series can be bought. Sport was a known Boston gambler who had a reputation for betting on baseball. In 1903, he tried to bribe Boston pitcher Ty Cobb during that year's World Series, and he was later arrested for betting on baseball in 1907. And the meeting between Chick and Sport took place at Boston's Hotel Buckminster. And it was disputed as to who initiated the meeting, but the two men had known each other since 1912. So they'd known each other for a while. The following day, Chick gets a, a teammate Eddie Sicote, a pitcher, and Swede Risberg, shortstop, involved. And I mentioned Eddie Sicote earlier. He was the pitcher who Comiskey sat so he didn't reach his 30 wins. So he didn't get his bonus, and so he was already soured towards Comiskey. So he's pissed. Yeah, he's he, pissed. he was ready to turn on him. So the first meeting to discuss throwing the World Series occurred September 21st, 1919, in Chick's room at the Ansonia Hotel in New York City. And this meeting involved uh, he involves the following players in the scheme. George Buck Weaver, third base. There's Claude Lefty Williams. He was a pitcher. There was Oscar Happy Felsch, center fielder. And then there was Fred McMullen, who sounds like a Disney character. <laughs> and then there's Fred McMullen, infielder, who got wind of the meeting and threatened to rat them out if he didn't get involved. I'd like to be clear that the only person who has a conscience is the man with no nickname. Yeah, exactly. Some accounts say that Shoeless Joe Jackson, not Shoeless Joe from Hannibal Moe, some say that he was present, but it's been disputed over time. Buck Weaver was the only player that attended the meetings that didn't end up receiving any money, though. Sicote happened to run into Sleepy Bill Burns. He was a retired baseball player who turned gambler, and Burns, Sleepy Bill, earned his nickname from his playing days. He was a pitcher who was said to have a lack of intensity when he was on the pitching mound, so he was Sleepy Bill. He played for five teams from eight, uh, 1908 to 1912, and he expressed interest in the fix. So Sleepy Bill turns to Billy Maharg to help him get money together to pay the players. Now, Sleepy Bill and Maharg approach a Battelle, another retired boxer, and they ask Attell about seeing if his associates Arnold Rothstein would be interested in bankrolling the fix. Rothstein turns them down. Now, Rothstein is probably the most infamous gambler and gangster of his time back then. Now, I'm a stupid man. Okay. Can you walk me through again? Yes. Because I think I'm just sewing up on nicknames. Who was trying to fix the World Series? Chick Gandal initially talked to Sport Sullivan. And they wanted the White Sox to take a dive? Yeah, they wanted the White Sox to take a dive. Ah, and they would then be paid for taking the dive. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Now, now really quickly, though, the, the asshole guy 
Roman. Uh, the old Roman. The old Roman. Kami. Was Kami aware of this? No. So he th- he has no idea. No, I mean, and that's the reason why they wanted to throw it be- to go against to Kami. Go, to be like he- a fuck you to him. Exactly. Got it. Okay, thank you. This was all one of those things where it's like, well, if we're not going to make money from playing the game that we're doing, then we might as well try to make some money from throwing it. Yeah. Got it. Oh, okay. So, wow. yeah. And so gamblers knew that players were getting treated like shit back then. And so it was easy to find marks, essentially. And so it was one of those things that once one gambler re- found out that they could be bought, then it went to another gambler, went to another one. And so it just kind of started spreading on the street until it got to Arnold Rothstein, who was the most prominent gangster gambler of his time and he wasn't even part of like the italian mob he was a jewish businessman and that's what everyone knew him as and he actually was the uh basis of the character of nathan detroit because from guys and dolls because he is said to have run the oldest established permanent floating crap game in new york where damon runyon got the idea for that from i did not know that yeah rothstein had deep pockets and even deeper connections and he ran a casino in manhattan so he had notoriety and that was big so sleepy bill and maharg approach uh abatel and Attel goes to rothstein about fixing it, and Rothstein says, no, I don't want to do this. The day after that, Attell goes to Sleepy Bill and Mahar and says, you know what, Rothstein has changed his mind, which was a lie. He tells them that Rothstein will put up $100,000 for the fix, but doesn't want his name mentioned. Rothstein will put the money up, but doesn't want his name mentioned. A few days later, September 26, Sports Sullivan approaches Rothstein with the same proposal, and Rothstein shows more interest in Sports' proposal because he respects him more. So... Sport knows that Rothstein likes him better, and so he goes, you know what, let me try this whole thing, and Rothstein says, I trust you. Yeah, let's go with your proposal. That's a mistake. So Rothstein agrees to put up 80000 for the fix, and he gave Sport Sullivan the initial 40000 to distribute to the involved players, and the other 40000 is to be placed in a safe at the Hotel Congress in Chicago to be paid off after the World Series. So the players have to be paid off first. Yeah, so well, there's $80,000 that is going to be distributed amongst the players. Who are the White Sox playing in this World Series? The Cincinnati Reds. Are the Reds in on it too? No, the Reds are not in on it. They're not, So okay. it's only the White Sox and the Gamblers are, as of now, the only ones like, going into the World Series that know about it. The players and the Gamblers know. But the Reds are totally oblivious. Reds are oblivious. Any management. And Kami is still in the dark. Yes, Kami's in the dark. The old Roman. So only 10000 the initial 40000 was then given to Chick Gandal. Because Sport Sullivan used the other $30,000 to bet on the series. And with that, the World Series was about to begin. And from the initial meeting discussing the fix to the start of the World Series, it was only a matter of 14 days. So two weeks to get all this in play. Hey friends, hope you're enjoying the show. If you are, could you do us a favor? After you listen to today's episode, open up your podcast app and leave us a review, please. The more reviews we get, the more people will discover us, and the more people that discover us, the less lost we'll feel. You're good, buddy. It's okay. Uh, look, nothing has ever been easier to do. Just go ahead and grab a pen real quick. It's okay. We'll wait. Don't worry. Okay, head on over to your podcast app, click those three dots in the lower right-hand corner, click Go to Show, scroll down till you see ratings and reviews, then leave us some stars and a comment or two so our parents know that it was worth all the tuition that they spent. And if you really love us, head on over to Patreon.com and send us some money, and in return... 
you will get access to merch, special episodes, bonus content, pictures of me shirtless. Okay, okay. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Search This Was a Thing and help us out. But you know what? You've already helped us out today by listening to us, and we can't tell you how much we appreciate that. So thank you. Thank you. Now it's time to get into the world series. Like I said, the 1917 World Series was a common seven-game series, what you see all the time now. But uh, in the 1919 World Series, it was actually a best-of-nine-game format. This was only one of four times in sports history for this format to be used. The first was in 1903, and then in 1919, 1920, and 1921. And it was partly due to increased popularity in the sport and was also like a revenue generator. So they thought, okay, two more games. We'll get some more money. Let's see what it does. So it's just crazy that there was two extra games that could be bet on. So game one, there were rumors of an alleged fix amongst gamblers and a sudden influx of money started being bet on Cincinnati and it caused the odds against them to fall rapidly. So it started getting out there and so everyone started betting on Cincinnati, Cincinnati, Cincinnati. So odds started to plummet against them, but they were still betting. So the first game began at three in Cincinnati's Redland Field. Chicago failed to score at the top of the first. In the bottom of the inning, Sakot who was paid his 10000 the night before the series began, he hit the leadoff hitter Maury Rath in the back with his second pitch, a prearranged signal to Rothstein that the fix was on. So him throwing and hitting the Cincinnati Red was a signal going, okay, it, we're doing this. So even so, the game remained close for a while, due in part to some excellent defense from the conspirators seeking to deflect suspicion from themselves. So they were still trying to play, but they were trying to get that one error, that little thing that'll make them lose the game, but they still wanted to put on an effort because they were still a good team. Now, in the fourth inning, Sakoti went haywire, and the Reds ended up scoring five times to break a 1-1 tie. Sakoti was relieved at that point, but the damage was done. The Reds went on to win 9-1. So Sleepy Bill and Maharg went to a- uh, met with Abatel, and they withheld the next installment of $20,000 nonetheless to bet on the game. So they still held $20,000 more to bet on the game. And the next morning, Gandal met with Attell and again demanded money, but no such luck. That night, Charles Comiskey and White Sox manager Kid Gleason met to discuss rumors that there was a fix. So after game one, Comiskey and the White Sox manager started going is there a fix going on? What's This seems a little weird. And these rumors also reached the press box where a number of correspondents, including Hugh Fullerton of the Chicago Herald and Examiner and ex-player and manager Christy Mathewson, they compared notes on any plays that they felt were questionable. However, most fans and observers were taking the series at face value. And October 2nd, the day of the second game, the Philadelphia Bulletin published a poem which would quickly prove to be ironic. A reading by Raymond Hebel. Still, it really doesn't matter, after all, who wins the flag. Good, clean sport is what we're after. And we aim to make our brag to each near or distant nation whereon shines the sporting sun that of all our games gymnastic, Baseball is the cleanest one. Please say they read that at the beginning. I hope they read it at the beginning. Okay, so game two, final score, 4-2 Cincinnati. Game three, final score, 3-0 Chicago. Game four, 2-0 Cincinnati. So it's 2-2 right now. So things are a little weird. Gamblers are wondering, what's going on? Why is it tied? 
We're going into Game 5 with a tie. Cincinnati wins Game 5, 5-0. Then Game 6, Chicago wins, 5-4. And that was kind of one of those things where it was like an oopsie-daisy. We went, didn't mean to win. So Game 7, which would normally be the last game, Chicago won again. So at that point, it was a... Three, four. Chicago has two more games left. Mm -hmm. Games eight, games nine. If they get to a game nine. So Cincinnati only has one more game to win to win five. So game eight, Cincinnati has to win this. Cincinnati has to win this or it goes to game nine and it'll be tied 4-4. Okay. So once it gets to game eight, Cincinnati is uh, 4-3. So what happens on game eight? So game eight, the final score is 10-5 Cincinnati. And so Cincinnati wins the series. Gamblers are happy. Players are paid off. They think, okay, well, we did our thing. We lost the World Series. Let's go on to, you know, let's go on to the next series. Well, actually, that didn't happen because immediately after the series ended, rumors were going from coast to coast that the games have been thrown. Um, That same journalist, Hugh Fullerton of the Chicago Herald and Examiner, disgusted by the display of ineptitude by which the White Sox had thrown the series, wrote that no World Series should ever be played again and a few days following the world series white Sox owner old roman kamiski released a statement that if anyone knows of a possible fix he will pay them twenty thousand dollars which for kamiski that is quite the reward for the man who's known to be pretty frugal with his money i mean what he's saying is is if you can tell me if my guy's fucked up yeah, i'll give you money exactly shit so yeah, so he knows because I mean, from all from what I read, it seemed like the White Sox were going were clear favorites to win over the Reds for the World Series before there was any talk of a fix. Now on December fifteenth, nineteen nineteen, the New York World publishes an explosive article by that Hugh Fullerton, and it suggested that the World Series was fixed. Okay, so the next year, rumors were flying around that the White Sox throughout the nineteen twenty season as they battled the Cleveland Indians for the American League pendant, and there were stories of corruption and cheating, and it made their ways to the players on other clubs, and play other players didn't like that. And then in September nineteen twenty, there was a grand jury that was convened to investigate. So Eddie Sakot confessed to his participation in the scheme. So on the eve of the final season series, the White Sox were in a virtual tie uh, for first place with the Indians. And despite the season being online, Charles Comiskey, Kami, suspended seven White Sox players still in the major. Comiskey said that he had no choice but to suspend them, even though this action was likely cost the Sox any chance of winning that year's American League pennant. But he thought they had to do it. So the Sox lost two of the three games in the final series against the St. Louis Browns and finished the season second, uh, two games behind Cleveland. The grand jury handed down its decision on October 22nd, 1920, and eight players and five gamblers were implicated. The indictments included nine counts of conspiracy to defraud. The 10 players that weren't implicated in the gambling scandal, as well as uh, manager Kid Gleason, were given bonus checks to the amount of $1,500, which is about $19,000 by Comiskey in the fall of 1920, and that's the amount equaling the difference between the winner's and loser's share for participation in the 1919 World Series. Shoeless Joe Jackson, who, who was also in the criminal court building, said that he wanted to confess, and Lefty Williams also confessed for his role in the scandal. Arnold Rothstein was summoned to Chicago to testify before a grand jury investigation on the incident. Uh, Rothstein said that he was an innocent businessman intent on clearing his name and his reputation. Prosecutors could find no evidence linking Rothstein to the affair, and he was never indicted. Rothstein testified... 
The whole thing started when Abe Attell and some other cheap gamblers decided to frame the series and make a killing. The world knows I was asked in on the deal, and my friends know how I turned it down flat. I don't doubt that Attell used my name to put it over. That's been done by smarter men than Abe. But I was not in on it. Would never have gotten in to it under any circumstances and did not bet a cent on the series after I found out which was underway. Now, a few weeks later, Rostin is exonerated of any blame in the scandal, but he's such a big factor in it nowadays that he just got off so scot-free and I wonder if nowadays there would have there probably would have been a lot more investigation into this man and I'm, he had the money to pay off people. This is where probably the best name in the whole realm of this was a thing comes in his name is kennesaw mountain landis kennesaw mountain landis kennesaw mountain landis so up until this point baseball had been governed by a three-man national commission consisting of american league president national league president and cincinnati reds owner so in january 1920 the reds owner Gary Herman left office at the request of other club owners, uh, leaving the commission essentially deadlocked between the American League and National League uh, owner, uh, leaders. There were a number of club owners who disliked one or both league presidents, and they just wanted one single commissioner, which, as you see nowadays, is one commissioner in Major League Sports. So, Kennesaw Mountain Landis was actually the first commissioner of any major league sport so he's actually big in this story that's where judge i'm sorry judge kennesaw mountain landis enters the picture now landis's name was mentioned at the press for this role and he and the influential baseball newspaper the sporting news which is still around today uh sought his appointment now kennesaw mountain landis that is judge kennesaw mountain landis not secretary kennesaw mountain landis judge Judge. now Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis has been a federal judge since 1905, and, he'd be a, and he was actually appointed by Teddy Roosevelt as a judge on the United States District Court for the Northern District of Illinois. So Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis was born in Millville, Ohio in 1886, and he was named after the site of the Battle of Kennesaw Mountain, a major battle in the American Civil War, which his father had been wounded in. There are two mistakes in my life, and they're both going to have the same name. Go get your gavel. And don't run around with my pants like those hooligan <laughs> baseball players. Landis received national attention back in 1907 because he fined Standard Oil of Indiana more than $29 million. He fined them? Yeah. So that was $800 million nowadays. So, I mean, that's just a huge number for back then. But they violated federal laws uh, forbidding rebates on railroad freight tariffs, you know, as they do in 1907. Baseball needed someone that was tough. And National League President John Heidler said this is who they wanted to lead baseball. We want a man as a chairman who will rule with an iron hand. Baseball has lacked a hand like that for years. It needs it now worse than ever. Therefore, it is our object to appoint a big man to lead the new commission. I picture this commission, but they're all wearing baseball gloves. Oh, absolutely. But they want Landis to be a baseball glove made of iron. Not brick! So on November 12th, 1920, the team owners came to Landis's courtroom to approach him. Landis was trying a bribery case. When he heard a noise in the back of the courtroom from the owners, he gaveled them to silence. And he made them wait 45 minutes while he completed his docket. Then he met with them. I picture him swearing them in and then and they spit their tobacco out. Exactly. Yeah. I do. I just love that this dude was getting approached to... <laughs> 
this new job and he made them shut the fuck up 45 minutes in the back of the courtroom. So he heard the owners after expressing initial reluctance. He took the job for seven years at a salary of $50,000 on condition he remained on the federal bench. During Landis's time serving as both judge and commissioner, he allowed a $7,500 reduction in his salary as commissioner, and that was to reflect his pay as judge. On January 30th, 1921, Landis, speaking at an Illinois church, warned, Now that I am in baseball, just watch the game I play. If I catch any crook in baseball, the rest of his life is going to be a pretty hot one. I'll go to any means and do anything possible to see that he gets a real penalty for his offense. Now, the criminal case against the Black Sox defendants suffered unexpected setbacks with evidence vanishing. Frustrated by the delays, on March 13, 1921, Landis placed all eight players on the ineligible list, banning them from major and minor league baseball. Charles Comiskey supported Landis by giving the seven players who remained under contract on the White Sox their unconditional release. So public sentiment was heavily weighed against the players. They hated them. And when Shoeless Joe Jackson, Lefty Williams, and Happy Felsch, and Buck Weaver played in semi-pro game, the sporting news mocked the 3,000 attendees, just like nuts going to see a murderer. The trial was set to begin on June 27, 1921 in Chicago, but was delayed by Judge Hugo Friend because two of the defendants, Ben Franklin and Carl Zork, claimed to be ill. How did Ben Franklin get involved in this? I think when he got electrocuted by with the... Uh, the kite? The kite, he definitely was like, ooh, time travel. Right fielder Shane O'Collins was named the wronged party in the indictment, accusing his corrupt teammates of having cost him $1,784 as a result of the scandal. And now, as I said earlier, before the trial, key evidence went missing from the Cook County Courthouse, including a signed confessions of Sakote and Jackson, who subsequently recanted their confessions. On July 1st, the prosecution announced that former White Sox player, Sleepy Bill Burns, who was under indictment for his part in the scandal, had turned state's evidence and would testify. Jury selection took several days, but on July 15th, 12 jurors were finally impaneled in the case. The trial began on July 18th, 1921, when prosecutor Charles Gorman outlines the evidence he planned to present against the defendants. The New York Times described the scene like this, at the time. The spectators added to the bleacher appearance of the courtroom, for most of them sweltered in sleeve shirts and collars were few. Scores of small boys jammed their way into the seats as Mr. Gorman told the alleged sellout. They repeatedly looked at each other in awe, remarking under their breaths, what do you think of that? Or, well, I'll be darned. Please do not put that sort of language on this program. God damn it. Charles Comiskey was then called to the stand and became so agitated with the questions being posed by the defense that he rose from the witness chair and shook his fist at the defendants. After numerous other remarks, Comiskey was quieted and sank back into his witness chair, seemingly greatly fatigued from this. So I'm guessing that Comiskey did not have a very good lung system. The most explosive uh, testimony comes from Sleepy Bill Burns, which is quite an ironic statement, thinking that Sleepy Bill was the explosive testimony. He said that the White Sox intentionally fixed the 1919 World Series, and he mentioned the involvement of Rothstein, among others, and testified that Tacote had threatened to throw the ball clear out of the park if he needed to lose a game. So there was additional testimony and evidence, and then on July 28th, the defense rested and the case went to the jury. 
Now, the state was asking for sentences of five years in jail and a $2,000 fine for each person involved. On August 2nd, 1921, the jury deliberated for less than three hours before returning verdicts of not guilty on all charges for all the accused players. Everyone got off. Yes. Now, the day after the acquittal, Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis announces that he will banish all eight players from baseball for life. He says, regardless of the verdict of juries, no player who throws a ball game, no player who undertakes or promises to throw a ball game, no player who sits in confidence with a bunch of crooked ball players and gamblers where the ways and means of throwing a game are discussed and does not promptly tell his club about it will ever play professional baseball again. But wait a minute. Yeah. A jury of 12 people mm-hmm. said this, there is not enough evidence for us to see that this occurred. So if that was their decision, why is he saying, well, they can't play anymore? The jury is saying we don't believe any of this. You're right. But I think he he needed to come in and make such a strong statement as the first commissioner. And plus, there was all that jur- that evidence that went away, which I'm sure he was privy to before it went away. That was there before it was presented to a jury. And if it's evidence isn't there, he can't present it to a jury. And I feel like public, public opinion was far more powerful than what the jury had to say back then. So had this World Series never happened, there would never be a baseball commissioner? Is that what I'm understanding? I feel like over time, they probably would have gotten it to be like, okay, there should only be one person in charge and like a board of directors. But this was definitely the thing that pushed it into happening to be the one. And now you see it all the time. And now you see commissioners blamed in every sport for anything. I mean, Roger Goodell right now in the NFL is probably one of the most hated people and it's just one of he's just an easy mark but judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis had to come in and make a strong statement to show that he was in charge because I mean if he didn't make this this kind of a strong statement I bet this kind of shit would have happened more and more and more no of course of course I'm just so confused because the jury has said this never happened now I mean I think we we have a lot of evidence to the contrary exactly but the jury said it never happened okay so I'm sorry so then what what did what did these how do these players react to the fact You're being banned for life. Well, okay, so the commissioner took the line that while the players had been quitted in court, there was no dispute that they had broken the rules of baseball and none of them could ever be allowed back in the game if they were to regain the trust of the public. So because they broke the rules so bad, if they were to be put back in, then the public would be like, well, look, you're letting these guys that broke the rules come in, so why should... I mean, yeah, okay, they're good baseball players, but they broke the rules. What are rules in place for if they're not meant to be followed? You know, and so I think there was so much rule breaking happening that Kennesaw Mountain had to come in, like I said, and establish if you're going to break rules, you're going to not be allowed to play baseball, whether you like it or not. You know, and if you think about it, baseball probably was, even though you weren't getting paid that much, you know, if you enjoyed, you get to play baseball for a living, even back then, which had to have been better than being a bricklayer. You bite your Irish tongue. So following the commissioner's statement, it was universally understood that all eight impl- implicated White Sox players were going to be banned from Major League Baseball. Two other players believed to be involved were also then banned. Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis, relying upon his years of expertise as a federal judge and attorney, used his decision as the founding precedent for the commissioner of baseball to be the highest and final authority over this organized professional sport in the United States. So with that, he said, I'm the final say. Everything goes through me, which still commissioners have the highest say. Uh, He established the precedence that commissioners was invested in the league with absolute power and the responsibility to determine the fitness or suitability of anyone, anything, or any circumstance to be associated with professional baseball, past, 
present, and future. So after the banning, Swede Risberg and several other members of the Black Sox tried to organize a three-state barnstorming tour. However, they were forced to cancel the plans after Landis let it be known that anyone who played with or against them would also be banned from baseball for life. And they announced the plans to play at a regular exhibition game every Sunday in Chicago, but the Chicago City Council threatened to cancel the license of any ballpark that hosted them. So everyone was playing by the rules of Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis. With seven of the best players permanently sidelined, the White Sox fell into seventh place in 1921 and would not be a factor in the pennant race again until 1936, uh, which was five years after Comiskey's death. So for the rest of Comiskey's life, the White Sox had no relevance really in baseball. They wouldn't win another American League championship until 1959, which was a then record 40 year gap from winning the last. And now I think the Cubs made it to like 70 years, though. And they wouldn't win a World Series again until 2005. That was where the big curse of the Black Sox came in. Now, in 1956, a Sports Illustrated article, uh, Chick Gandel expressed remorse for the scheme, but wrote that the players had actually abandoned it when it became apparent they were going to be watched closely. So according to Gandel, the players' numerous errors were a result of fear that they were being watched. So I don't know if that's the truth or what. So they're not throwing the game. They're nervous. Yeah, they're nervous that people are realizing that they're going to throw the game. And so their nerves make them throw the game. I don't know. Seems a little fishy to me. Now, Shoeless Joe Jackson was raised in South Carolina and had a limited education, and so he said that he was drawn unwillingly into the conspiracy, uh, while Buck Weaver admitted to his presence in the meetings, but he stated that he took no money. Both men stated that their play on the field and their batting percentages during the series indicated that they did not help throw the World Series, 375 for Jackson, 324 for Weaver. None of them were ever reinstated, like I said, and Landis telling a group of Weaver supporters that his presence at the meetings with the gamblers had suffi- was sufficient enough to bar him. So even today, long after the deaths of the three men, efforts are periodically made to reinstate Jackson, who would at least be eligible for the National Baseball Hall of Fame. He's been treated sympathetically in movies such as Eight Men Out and Field of Dreams, and Hall of Famers Ted Williams and Bob Feller express their support of Jackson's induction into the Hall. Landis's expulsion of the eight men remains in force, so they will never be eligible eligible. Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis remained the commissioner of baseball until his death in 1944. Arnold Rothstein, who they say was the brains behind uh, this whole thing, ended up being one of the most successful alcohol bootleggers during Prohibition. Good. Nice to know he's got another career. Yeah. At at one point, it said that he was worth more than $10 million, which is about $150 million in today's money, just through bootlegging alcohol. He was shot and mortally wounded in 1928 and, uh, it was reported that links to debts from a three-day-long poker game is what did him in. In the novel The Great Gatsby, F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote a character based on Rothstein, Meyer Wolfsheim. Oh, I didn't know that. The White Sox scandal is still considered one of the darkest stains on any professional American sport. Countless books have been written, confessions recanted, innocence still waiting to be proven. There was a successful book, Eight Men Out, and it was made into a film in 1986. Michael Rooker played Chick Gandel. John Cusack played Buck Weaver, Charlie Sheen played Happy Felsh, and Christopher Lloyd played Sleepy Bill Burns. It holds an 86% approval rating from Rotten Tomatoes. They were an American dream come true, the best that ever were. Nine men took the field, but when the game was over, there were eight men out. What do you think of these players of yours now, Mr. Gleason? I think they're the greatest ball club i ever seen, period. Now, after the break, yes. if the listeners are 
still processing all the names, we will talk about our thoughts on the 1919 World Series. And, you know, if there's anything that ever kind of has happened recently that's like that. It sounds like you know something. Coming up. Play ball with the bricks. <laughs> this was a thing. This was a thing. And now, this is a sketch. Settle down, settle down, settle down there, fellas. Now, welcome to the last day of the 1920 baseball draft. Those of us on the commission have made the decision to allow the White Sox to play this season, but as a penalty for their illegal activities last year, they were the last team to select their players for the season, and they were not allowed to pick anyone who has played in the major league before. To announce his new team, here is the old Roman. Thank you, Commissioner. This was not an easy selection process, not because there was so much talent, but because there really was no talent. None. Literally, someone came to tryouts with a mallet. Why would you even have a mallet? Regardless, we did what Chicagans have been doing since the founding of our city, buried our faces in a beer and hoped to God we'd wake up in the morning not regretting too much of our lives. Anyway, without further ado, here is the starting lineup for your 1920 penalized Chicago White Sox. From the backwoods of Marion, our star hitter, Melvin Kaminsky. We call him our star hitter because he once punched Rudolph Valentino. Having recently raised four children and five grandchildren and looking for something to fill the day since her husband passed, our pitcher is Mrs. Elvira Nugent of Cicero, who, at 79 years old, is the oldest player in baseball history. My neighbor said the exercise would be good for me. Okay, slugger. As you know, the catcher is pivotal to our success, and this catcher says he caught and outed more guys than any baseball team, so we know we're in good hands with confirmed bachelor Mr. Tobias G. Winston of Edgewater. He's also saving us money this year as he is bringing his own knee pads. Finally, first, second, and third base will be Al Capone's girlfriend, Mrs. O'Leary's cow, and a slice of deep dish pizza, respectively. I look forward to exploring new and interesting ways to lose in the upcoming season. Play ball! Thank you. This was a sketch. A hundred years later, this is still probably the biggest scandal to hit any American professional sport. More than steroids? Now, there's been guys doing roids in baseball. There's even the basketball ref, Tim Donaghy, who was betting against teams. I didn't know that. It was like in like the early 2000s, even like there's a Lakers-Kings game that he bet against, and he called certain ways, and Kings fans will say that the Lakers shouldn't have won that game. And there's even Pete Rose. But I think that this is, a as a collective group of players on a team... This is a very large conspiracy. I think it's a lot... Exactly. All the other ones like roids, okay, yes, there are doctors who are you know roiding out the athletes or giving them that but they're not part of the actual organization pete rose is his own guy betting against his team but he didn't have other players involved this was probably the biggest conspiracy in sports and for a guys to get together and throw the world series to throw it to lose it is i mean it's it wouldn't happen nowadays at least with player contracts and players 
you know, minimum salaries and stuff, players are can feel like they're, you know, getting their money's worth, especially for how big the game of baseball is. And it sounds like these players that, uh, first of all, obviously what they did was wrong, but it sounds like what they were trying to do was say, we're sick and tired of being walked over. We're sick and tired of being stepped on and not being treated with the respect that we think we deserve because we're making you a ton of money why aren't you giving us any of it exactly so for them to go forward and say yeah we're going to take our own team and make our own team lose that's a pretty big statement to make exactly but uh, would not have happened had they been treated correctly to in the first place yeah and and if you think about it like nowadays there's four major team sports there's baseball basketball football and hockey curling my friend but i mean like boxing was big this was the the major team sport so baseball was everything it was america's pastime that's you know and so for a team to come out and I don't know. It just it had to have been insane. Now, a couple years ago, the Astros were caught cheating in the World Series. So a catcher will make a call to a, a pitcher and that will determine what the pitcher will throw. Fastball, curveball or whatever. The Astros started learning what those plays were called that the uh, catcher was calling out. And so the Astros would bang on trash cans, letting their players know, OK, you're going to have a fastball coming. So a fastball might be three bangs. How is that cheating? Because they also in their clubhouse had TVs up and were watching feeds where they're not supposed to be doing that. I mean, I'd have to get into the details, but the Astros cheating to win the World Series is probably one of the biggest things to happen in baseball. And there's been a commission about saying, yes, there was cheating. Was their win taken away from them? Their win wasn't taken away from them. They just got a slap on the wrist. So let me see if I understand this because I'm not a baseball person. Yeah. So what you're saying is, is the pitcher and the catcher are both part of the same team. Yes. The catcher throws a signal to the pitcher. Like, for example, if I flash my finger twice, that means you're going to throw me a curveball. Exactly. And the only people that know about that are the pitcher and the catcher. And the other team, the Astros, saw this and started to deduce when he flashes two fingers, that means he's throwing a curveball. How is that cheating? That's poor... Sportsmanship. No, that's poor communication between the pitcher and the catcher. It's supposed to be like a gentleman's agreement? But here's the thing. They shouldn't be banging on trash cans and putting out signs that's their signal but that's cheating how is that cheating because it's supposed to be played on the field you're not supposed to have anything inside the the box so why is his signaling not cheating because they're on the same team the the catcher has to has to tell the pitcher what he wants to do so the guy that's gonna kind of gonna hit the ball he shouldn't know what's gonna be pitched at him i don't think the astros should have been disqualified anyway I'd love to see a story nowadays where a Yankee and a member of one of the five families in New York get together and try to throw a game. <laughs> what? The Yankees try to throw a game? When a Yankee star and one of the f- members of the five families, the Italian mob, I think that would make a great CBS sitcom. Maybe it's called Banging on Trash Cans. Thanks for tuning in. You want to play a game? Sure. All right. Here's, here's the game. You ready? I'm going to bang on a trash can. <laughs> Fuck. And you tell me what I want you to do. But don't act like you know. No, we'll play a real game. Let's play a real game. This was a thing, and now it's a quiz. This is a this was a quiz. With Mark Schroeder. Now, most people know the big names of the Chicago White Sox from the 1919 World Series you covered. But how many people know the names of the opposing team, the Cincinnati Reds? Oh, my God. From 1919. So this is a game that I'm calling Cincinnati Reds or Red Dead Redemption 2. Oh. So... (laughs) 
<laughs> I am going right. to. I have a list of names here. Big RDO fan. Okay, well, I'm a big REM fan. Man on the moon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I'm going to list off names here, and they're either from Red Dead Redemption Two, or they're players on the Cincinnati Reds. Are we competing against each other? Or we can work together. Well, you might be at a disadvantage if you're okay. So I've, let me. We'll do each. We'll we'll see oh, how many no. you can get, oh, and then we'll no. see how many you can get. Mark Schroeder coming at me with baseball. Okay, I'll do seven each. If they're not characters in Damn Yankees, I'm going to be really lost. <laughs> Hovick. Sahovic. So, is that his name? Yeah, Sahovic? that's who I played. Okay, this will start with you, Ray. So I'll give you seven names here. Bill Williamson. Bill Williamson. Is he, he's part of Dutch Vanderland's gang in Red Dead Redemption well, 2. That is true. Jimmy Ring. Jimmy Ring is a player for the Cincinnati Reds. Angelo Bronte. Angelo Bronte. He's Red Dead. Billy Zitzman. Reds. Heine Grow. Reds. Greasy Neal. Red Leopold Strauss. Leopold Strauss is a side mission. That would be uh, Red Dead. All right, he's uh, seven for seven, Rob. Shit, can you help me? I can help you. So this is either they're a player on the Cincinnati Reds, or they're on Red, or they're a character from the video game Red Dead Redemption. Re- Red Dead Redemption. I'll show you. It's fun. It's a great game. Micah Bell. Red Dead. Red, Red Dead. Well, the game. Micah. Hod Eller. Baseball. Josiah Trelawney. Video game. Dutch Ruther. Baseball. Ivy Wingo. Baseball. Hosea Matthews. Video game. And Slim Sally. Baseball and my jazzercise class. Oh, very correct. You guys both know a whole lot about both Red Dead Redemption 2. I'm a huge Reds fan. And the 1919 <laughs> Cincinnati Reds. Oh, I, I remember playing Red Dead Redemption so much on Sega. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, the biggest, the, my favorite is, well, there's two people that are, here are the real players from the Cincinnati Reds. Jimmy Ring. Billy Zitzman, Heine Grow, Greasy Neal, Hod Eller, Dutch Ruther, Ivy Wingo, and Slim Sally were all human beings in this world. Why did these parents hate their children? Don't eat too much chocolate or your Heine Grow. I mean, I don't think they named them until they knew they were going to live anyway. So it's like... <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter. They're all going to have diphtheria. Yeah. Well, the soft spot hardened up. I guess they're going to live. I uh, call it greasy. It's always covered in some sort of film. <laughs> if you were a baseball player at this time, Mark, what would your nickname be? Oh, my God. Uh, just Moot. <laughs> Moot Schroeder. Moot Schroeder, yeah. Coming up to bat is Moot Schroeder. What about you, Ray? Sweaty. Sweaty Hebel? Yeah. Here he comes. Oh, Sweaty Hebel dropped the ball again. <laughs> How is the mitt sweating? We don't know, but <laughs> what's yours? Mine? Probably like Fats or something. Fats. There comes Rob Fats Schneider up <laughs> to play third base, and he's sitting down, and he has a burger. We don't know where the burger came from. <laughs> is that? It's a stool. He brought a stool. <laughs> he missed the ball again because he was signing for his pizza order. The... <laughs> A Domino's man has come to the field. I just imagine you like you dressed as like Wimpy from Popeye. Yes. There's now an argument at third base. No, not between the players, but between Rob and the Pizza Man. Got the order wrong, and he's pretty peeved. He's trying to explain to the Pizza Man that he did tip. He did tip already and doesn't need to give any nickels over to the pizza man. Something about already paid on the app. <laughs> he's already paid on the app. We don't know what that means. Oh, he's kicked dust on the pizza man. And now he's raiding the stands and he's attacking a concession man and stealing the hot dogs. And for the fat man boy, he's running away from his responsibility pretty fast. Now we know how he got on the team. He's just stolen the delivery guy's jalopy and he's driving away. Where will he go? Indiana. Missouri. Nope. He stopped at a burger store. <laughs> he's stopping to eat a burger. <laughs> 
That's Fat Schneider, World Series. <laughs> this year, he has uh, three outs, one in, and type 2 diabetes. Oh, no. Jesus Christ. Was type 2 discovered by 1990? It was just called the sweats. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Back then. Oh, so, sweat, sweaty heba. Exactly. Maybe you had it, too. All right, friends. Thank you for that, Mark. That was our World Series 1919 game. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, baseball. And thank you, Commissioner Kennesaw. Mountain Landis. John Landis' great-grandfather. Exactly, yeah. All right, we'll see you all next time. Take care. Thanks for listening to This Was a Thing, and a big thanks to the folks that keep this show running. Our editor, Daniel Cut-Cut Schwartzberg, our composer, Billy Better Than DC Reese, our social media director, Gabe Hashtag Crawford, our graphic designer, Natalie's Nothing's Too Graphic DeSavia, and finally, our games coordinator, Mark the Shark Schroeder. If you liked what we did today, make sure to head on over to iTunes to rate and review us. The more stars you leave us, the more love we feel. Hey, speaking of love, show us some social media love. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at This Was A Thing Pod and Facebook we are This Was A Thing Podcast. Reach out, we'd love to hear from you. And if you really liked what we did today, head on over to Patreon.com and become one of our sponsors and you'll get access to special episodes, interviews, and merch. That's Patreon. Search This Was A Thing and support us so we can keep doing this show. 